was, is known as the founder of Chabad and Chassidus. Chabad, later known as Lubavitch, after the town they moved to. Chabad, as someone pointed out last week, is an acronym for Chachma Bina Vadas, which we're going to spend time discussing. So who was this, this individual? Third generation Chassid, as they say. He was born on the 18th of, of Elul, otherwise known as Chai Elul. 18 is Yudches, so Chai. That's the, the Chabad, it's a uh, bit of a... I think Chabad, anytime they have an opportunity to uh, celebrate with the Lachayim, they'll do so. But certainly in Yudches Elul, it's a very important day. He was one of the youngest Hasidim of the Magad of Mezrich, or Mezrich, again, depending on where you're from in Europe. It's the same town. People here, I think, say Mezrich. My bubby said Mezrich. So I tell the Hasidim, my bubby's from Mezrich. They say it's Mezrich. And I say, well, she was from Mezrich. <laughs> She, once, she said that one time, I think she was in uh, Miami or Boca, and there was a fight that broke out among two of the older American women at the pool. One said, you know, they both grew up speaking Yiddish in their home, in you know, Queens or you name it. And one said, a certain word is pronounced this way. The other one said, no, it's pronounced that way. So I turned to my grandmother and they said, uh, Minna, how do you say it? So she goes, you're right and you're right. She goes, what do you mean? He goes, you're from Poland, you're from Lithuania. So the lady got very upset, and she goes, Minna, how do you know? What language do they speak in your shtetl? Hello, hello. Hello. So my bubby goes, they spoke French. (laughs) Really? She goes, no, they spoke Yiddish, you idiot. (laughs) You're right, and you're right. Thank you. So how did I, why did I even say that? Oh, so the Magad of Mezrich was uh, one of the prime disciples of the Baal Shem Tov. So again, we discussed last Baal Shem Tov. If he's the grandfather, son is the Magad of Mezrich, his youngest chassid is the Balatanya. There's a lot of there's a lot going on right now just in the greater European uh, European world. At that point, the Polish kingdom. This is late 1700s. The Polish kingdom is on the verge of collapse. It's slowly being eaten away the, by Hungary's t- taking away a little bit of it. Prussia and the main part of Poland is kind of being absorbed or taken over by Tsarist Russia, which is also why the Chabad Hasidus. Is one of the, you know, when you think of who was in, where is Hasidish? Hasidim generally, most Hasidim were in Poland. You also have some that made it into Lithuania. And then, when you, when in terms of Russia, the main Hasidist in Russia was Lubavitch. That's actually why the Lubavitch, the Lubavitch Library is owned by Russia, and that's the whole controversy, which is still, I think, ongoing in terms of that. Um, and we'll see that this is going to play a very important role in a, in a, in a moment. What happens is the, um, the Baal Shem Tov always wanted to make Aliyah. We mentioned last week, Israel at that point was populated mainly by the Svardim. The uh, Baal Shem Tov and, the, for that matter, the Grar of Elijah Kramer from Vilna. Who, if you think of the two great leaders of that time, it was the Baal Shem Tov movement of Hasidus. And in the Lithuanian world, the world of uh, the Litvaks, they say, the world of Torah only, that was the Grar, Elijah Kramer. And we'll see, they, they, they had a bit of a dispute, we'll get that in a minute. So he also wanted to make Aliyah, um, and which is why then Israel becomes populated. The first Aliyah, the first wave, is the, t- the students of the Baal Shem Tov, the students of the Gra. And even till this day, a lot of the customs of Israel that differ from, let's say, the diaspora, in the Ashkenaz world, it's because it's coming from these two schools of thought. What happens is that, therefore, the, um, some of the early Hasidim, Rav Nachman Mendel Vitebsk, they say we're gonna we're going to go to Israel, but we're gonna have a uh, we're gonna keep our court in in Poland, meaning we'll, we'll long distance we'll we'll zoom we'll zoom the first the first zoom. So as we know, zoom doesn't really work so well, especially before you invent zoom. <laughs> and slowly they begin to realize this is not going to work, 
And for a number of reasons, uh, the Alta Rebbe becomes, kind of fills that vacuum, fills that void in, 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 in Russia, Poland, Russia, that area. So he becomes the Rebbe. He comes from an interesting person. His father was not a Rebbe. He didn't come from a long family of rabbis. He didn't look at the role of a Rebbe as a miracle worker. He found other Hasidim do, do that. He didn't view that. He viewed the role of the Rebbe as primarily a, a leader. And even within that, he wasn't exactly the, uh, the, the leader who wanted to spend his days talking to people. In fact, he gets overwhelmed by the amount of people coming to him. Emotionally overwhelmed, physically overwhelmed. He was a big Tamil Chacham. It's also very important because one of the polemics against the Hasidim was not only they were teaching Kabbalah to the masses, but also they weren't prioritizing Talmud Torah, learning Torah, and they were prioritizing learning, Asitfilah, and other sorts of things. In fact, I meant to bring it. I, have a, I actually have a long polemic written by the, the, uh, some of the people in Vilna, which basically ostracized and put into Cheyrem and, and ostracized the Hasidim. And it lists a number of things they didn't like, including the Davin Late, which we can still see now. I, I, I joke in Linden, if you miss the early Mincha, the next Mincha is 45 minutes after Shkia. Mm-hmm. The problem is Mincha can only be said before Shkia. Okay, before sundown. There were a number of issues they had with them. Some of them, uh, historians have shown, uh, there was no validity to them. This was just polemics. And some of them, there was sort of validity. And that's a, we'll get there in a second. I mean, but um, he was not, a, he didn't, he was a big time Chacham. And this is very important because, again, early Hasidus didn't, Put, the first two generations, they didn't put, put, put a primacy on that. In the Lithuanian world, being a Tamil Chacham was the sine qua na example of being a leader. You want to be a leader? It wasn't that you uh, were a nice person. It was the Tamil Chacham. The Gona Vilna dedicated his life to learning to the extent that he, he wouldn't leave his house so he wouldn't waste time learning. This was Lithuanian Jewry. The Alter Rebbe, he actually wrote what's called the Shulchan Aruch Harav, or Rav Shulchan Aruch, which he wrote a Shulchan Aruch with his practices. It's not just a random, you know, again, he called the Shulchan Aruch just similar to the Code of Jewish Law, but this becomes widely accepted to the extent that the Mishnah Bura, which is, you know, one of the, the la- I could say one of the last, one of the last or final words in terms of the way Halacha is practiced nowadays, he's constantly quoting uh, the Griz Shulchan Aruch. Griz Shulchan Aruch stands for the uh, Shulchan Aruch of Shner Zaman. Uh, Zaman. So he's constantly quoting it. It's, you look anywhere, he's constantly quoting Shulchan Aruch. And, just to, to bolster this, he even re, he rewrote the laws of Talmud Torah, the laws of Torah study, and, it, and expanded on it in a way that had never been done before, maybe since the Rambam. So we're talking about a major figure in the world of Halacha, so he, that gave him a lot of credence. Either way, important things to know about him. What happened was, is there was, again, there was a lot, it was a very acrimonious relationship between the Litvish world and the Hasidish world. Um, part of it was the Litvish world saw it as a threat. Part of it was they were upset at the Kabbalah being taught. Part of it, as we mentioned last week, was this whole shop site Svi situation where, you know, they're still living with, in the, you know, this, a century later of, and then there was Jacob Frank of these false messiahs purporting to use mysticism, and they're like, and now you're coming and using the same thing. A lot of, you know, they were suspect of what was going on here and became very acrimonious to the extent, to the extent that at a certain point they libeled the Shner Zam of Liadi, they call him the Alta Rebbe, the first Rebbe, to the government, said he wanted to overthrow the government and the Russian, the Tsar, had him thrown into jail. What led to this? Again, there was these polemics. There was, the, there was a claim that when the Gona Vilna died, he, he actually was on, it was on, it was on Sukkis, and he went ahead with his regular old simple space of Shueva, ignoring the fact that the great undisputed leader of Torah Jewry had died. It wasn't true, by the way. 
You know, it's interesting. People ask, I had a discussion with uh, Dr. David Berger. Um, he, uh, of Revel, he was one of the premier historian. So he wanted to know why was it that the, the Cherem, this band, never caught on. He had, a, he had a number of reasons. Reason number one, he said, is when the opposition becomes bigger than you and you put them into Cherem, you, you put them under ban, you're really just putting yourself under ban. You know, you're banning yourself. Right? If, you, if you end up saying, everyone but me is, is in, is in Cherem, and so then they're all going to talk to each other and you're stuck alone. But the other thing he pointed out was, at the end of the day, they were a deeply religious community. Even if you'll look at other forms of Hasidus, such as uh, Ishbitz. Ishbitz was their, came from the, um, the uh, Ishbitz Rebbe was the um, Rav Menachem Mendel, Rav, Rav Liner, Rav Liner. So he had some very radical philosophy about free will, or for that matter, kind of saying there is no free will, um, the role of sin, how you can sin, and it can be there's, pos- there's positive elements in sin. And again, I don't want to get into all now. There's a lot there. There's a lot to discuss. It's a very radical philosophy, but they were always a very strictly religious community. That's also part of it. Like, if someone, you know, espouses a radical philosophy, but also doesn't live a traditional lifestyle, so it's easier to say, oh, you're not part of us. Whereas if it's just in philosophy, you say, God doesn't have, there's no free will. Or you say, sometimes sin is good, but at the end of the day, no one's sinning. So, uh, my friend Dov Vishevkin wrote a long article about this a number of years ago, uh, in a symposium about just... I mean, it's not what this was about and for now, longer discussion. But again, that's just important. Okay, fine. So I want to discuss a little bit this, ma- this major story. The major story is as follows. A letter arrives to the Tsar, accusing the Rebbe of misdeeds, such as aiding the French Revolution that was taking place back then. Interestingly, Napoleon is on his march. There's a big debate, although historically we can't find evidence for this one way or the other. But in Chabad Hasidus, they claim the tradition is the Rebbe supported the Tsar over Napoleon because he said the emancipation Napoleon, that Napoleon would bring would wreck a bigger spiritual disaster to the Jewish people than living under the Tsar. And yes, your freedoms may be, may be curtailed, but it kept the traditional community intact. So he balanced... More secular, yeah, the, Napoleon was bringing the French Revolution, freedom, uh, you know, the dearth of God to some extent. So we'll, I'm not, we're not, so we'll get there in a second. But yeah, for sure, 100%. It's, it's shocking. And then you have to also remember, you know, hooligans exist everywhere. Sometimes you have leaders who can have genuine debates, and then you have their disciples who, don't, who aren't able to um, pick up on the nuance of a difference between debate and... And that's often what happens, is great people can debate, and their students don't always debate. But um, so alleged, allegedly, that um, he he supported the Tsar over Napoleon because of this reason. Can we substantiate that? I don't know. People like to quote it all the time about the dangers of spiritual danger. Either way, he also said that they waste their time in uh, you know all his time, all his students are wasting their time. And uh, there was also some sort of claim. It's unclear if it happened this time or the second time he got thrown in jail that he was sending money away to uh, Israel, which he was. She was, because there's actually there's a mitzvah to support the poor people of Israel, especially then when there was no, there was no, you know, any sort of really yeshuv that had been set up. So he's arrested. Uh, it's a long story. They came out, they, they came to him, with you know, these soldiers with big black boots on horses, and he went and hid in the cemetery. They beat his wife up, and he came back the next day, and he basically realized he had to turn himself in because of what's going to happen. So he turns himself in, um, and again... There's different accounts. There's a historical account. And there's the account the way it's told, and obviously when this is this became a legend and a founding legend of the founding narrative of Chabad Hasidus. So you can imagine it takes on a life of its own. 
He tells the people they have to fast, uh, Mondays and Thursdays, even Shabbos eat to bare minimum, children are reciting Tehillim, they're, everyone's going to the mikvah, they're, everyone's davening, they're, they're, there's one, one account that they went to the live Yitzhak Barditchev, the big great Barditchever, and he said to them, well, you should rely on a miracle, he's a Rebbe, and he goes, we don't, we don't do that in the Chabad world. Okay. There are various accounts of the interrogation. It happens to be we have, I believe, records of, from, the, um, from the czar side of the interrogation. The, um, and then there, obviously there's the mythology that spawned. But basically, you know, he said to them, he, um, he asked basic questions. What is your name? How do you support yourself? Do you pay taxes? Um, they began in Russian. And he said, basically, uh, I, need, I need a translator so I can answer. I, even though I speak Russian, in order to answer appropriately, I need a translator. So they got a translator. Uh, again, a lot of this is written down. Um, apparently, the tra- there's no translator available, so things had to go back and forth to uh, to Vilna, de- delayed everything. Um, the, per- the people, these, these, uh, the, the uh, interrogators seem to either be very well-versed in Judaism, or maybe they were Jewish themselves and no longer affiliated, I'm not sure. But they asked very specific questions like, what's different about you when you lit- litvish? Why are you putting such a premium on prayer? And he talked about, and in, in there he talks about the differences between them. There's a lot going on there. Okay. He talks about, um, fine. He talks about the money being sent to Israel and the importance of, of supporting people who are to Israel. So that's, that's the story. Eventually he gets out on Yud Ches Elul. Uh, uh, sorry, he gets out on Yud Tes Kislev. Did you ever hear of Yat Kislev? Yud Tes Kislev coming up in a few weeks. That became a holiday celebrating the release of the Rebbe. He came out, again, the story's dead, he threw up for Brengen, did he throw up for Brengen, did he not throw up for Brengen, who cares? Like, but it became, in the, in, in the Chabad Chassidus, it's one of the very important days of the year, Yud Tes Kislev. I, I remember, I'm, see, I'm all new to this also, I think they look at that as almost like the Rosh Hashanah for, for Chassidus. This was the beginning, once he got out of jail, he kind of came out recharged with a new mission that now he's taken his little court and his little ideas and he's going to spread it to the masses. Similar to like the Valshant of last week, he came down from this like mystical journey, he goes, now I'm going to spread my Torah. I think the way Chabad Chassidus looks at it is Yud Kislev is the beginning of Chabad Chassidus. Because this is when he came out reinvigorated, recharged, and ready to spread the Chassidus, kind of saying, I, if I, I defeat Bizarre. I defeated all my enemies, and now I'm you know, almost interpreting with a divine mandate to start spreading Chassidus. So it's a very important date. There's one story they say over, I, I doubt it's true, but I learned the story a couple years ago, a number of years ago, Rabbi Yechiel Eckstein. Anyone hear, ever hear Rabbi Yechiel Eckstein? He's a very colorful character. He started the Christian Jewish Fellowship, which is an organization that last year raised close to $200 million from evangelical Christians in throughout America to send to Israel. Uh, he's, again, a very colorful character from Chicago, eventually made Aliyah. His daughter, Yal, took over. He passed away in a heart attack a couple years ago, passed away. Either way, I spent Shabbos with him at my grandparents' house. He was Scotland residence, so he stayed at my grandparents. And he, we found out, not only was he a big you know, advocate for money, he mentioned he sang. And my grandfather goes, what do you sing? He goes, well, actually, I was in Kol Salonika. And I even, I think he was on Rabbi Sons. These are, these, not Rabbi Sons, um, the Vegas. These are, from the, these are, uh, choirs from the 60s, the, some of the first American published records that, like, from like the you know, this world, where Baruch Che in the 60s publishing these things. So my grandfather got all excited, and we ended up singing. I remember it's in my grandparents' house. We were singing. I don't know it was a Friday. It was Friday night, and then again we had Kiddush. My grandfather died with Ashkama, and he learns afterwards for years. So we had Kiddush, and instead of learning, we sat at the table singing. So they were trading the Gunim, singing the Gunim. At one point, my grandfather said, "I'm going to teach you Napoleon's March." 
because he mentioned where he he was very um, taken by Chabad. Why? Part of the reason may be is because for various reasons he felt he was rejected by certain streams of orthodoxy, whether jealousy, whatever it may be. And Chabad, as we know, welcomes everyone with open, hand, open arms. He gave you know, millions of dollars to Chabad's throughout Russia. So I'm going to teach you the Napoleon's March. There's a, there's a song which I can play for you after. It's called Napoleon's March. It's a Chabad song. A lot of their songs come from these sort of marching bands. So he goes, what's the story allegedly is that the Rebbe's in jail. Again, I don't think historical is, there's any veracity to this. Okay. The Rebbe's in jail and Napoleon's marching and they're singing a song. And the Rebbe turns to the jailer and says, or, or the general's interrogating him and said, you hear that song? That's the song of victory. Napoleon marches to Waterloo. It's decimated. He back, they said, Rebbe, you said this is the song of victory. He goes, yes, I didn't tell you whose victory. <laughs> okay, that's allegedly, uh, that took, who? Rebbe Eckstein. There's a, a journalist by the name of Chefetz. Chefetz wrote, wrote a book about him. I think it's called Bridge Builder. He was a very colorful character. Um, he does give, a, you know, his organization gives $200 million. Yeah. The uh, evangelicals interpret the Pasuk from Yeshayahu of Nachu Nachu Ami, comfort, comfort my people, as a directive to the nations of the world to comfort the Jewish people. Hmm. Now, there is some controversy. Are they doing it because they think that we're all going to get to Jerusalem and convert us or not? You know, Malcolm Honline, the Council of Jewish Presidents, once said, look, at the end of the days, we're right. So they'll say, okay, fine, they'll walk away. And at the end of the days, they're right. So we'll convert because they're right. <laughs> but, like, you know, I'll take the money. No. <laughs> I, okay, so that was okay. So that was the basic uh, outline of his life. Eventually, he, there's a lot more in terms of he ends up running from the Tsar government. He 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 dies. He wrote not only Shochnar Harav. He wrote a number of different mamarim and articles and books. But eventually, he writes a book known as the Tanya. It's actually not the Tanya. The Tanya is a misnomer. The Tanya is just it's from the first chapter. It opens up with the word Tanya, the first in the first sentence. It's really called uh, Lukute Mamarim which means a collection of teachings, which, by the way, makes it sound like it's like almost, it's, it's, uh, like an, it's a, um, a random collection of teachings. It's, it's a very systematic, organized work. Anything but a collection. It's, but that's what he calls it. This becomes the Bible. Literally the Bible to the extent that some Hasidim call it the Torah Shebek Sav, the written Torah of Hasidus. Especially, in, in this case, Chabad Hasidus. It's a very technical, complicated work that's multi-layered. I'm actually, I'm, I'm starting next Wednesday to be learning. I'm learning with the Chabad Shalich Hillside. We're going to start going through this because I figure in order to give this year properly, I probably should learn Tanya. And I wasn't having much success myself because it's not really the language I am used to speaking. But um, it's a very technical work. A lot of Kabbalah, a lot of Arizal Kabbalah is in here. And it, it's a very important work. And the reason he writes it, he writes the introduction was he's overwhelmed by everyone coming to him. So instead of giving advice personally, he'll write a book. Everyone will disseminate it to everyone. And young, people can stop bothering me. That's basically what he writes and I won't be overwhelmed. It's broken to five, wor- five works. And let's, I want to go through a little of that with you right now. So the first work is called Sefer Habenonim, the work of the in-betweeners, the book of in-betweeners. So what is this? So he explains as follows. There are five archetypes of people that exist in this world. So there are, there's the complete tzaddik, the tzaddik gamor, the completely righteous person. He's someone that not only does he have no evil inclination, but somehow he, he manages to use whatever evil inclination exists for the good. These are people like Moshe Rabbeinu that their evil inclination gets used for the good. Okay, that's not our level. He goes, then there's the uh, tzaddik who's not a complete tzaddik, and they just don't have an evil inclination, meaning they vanquished it, they've overcome it. 
Then he has the often wicked person, meaning they not so infrequently are they sinning and doing things that aren't right. And lastly, there's a totally wicked person. We call them Hamas. What's the fifth level? The Benoni, the in-betweener. And that's all of us, he writes. So what does he mean by the in-betweener? So I always thought what it means is, you know, the Rambam uses this language of the in-betweener of most people. Like, are we, can I say I'm a tzaddik? No. Am I a Russia? Probably not. I'm like in between. Some days I have my good days, I have my bad days, my good moments, my bad moments. Some days I get a little upset, I have a little road rage. Oh, days I get a little stuck. I figured that's what he meant. That's not at all what he means. So I understood this. Rabbi Shays Taub, I started listening to his podcast. He's a, he's a uh, Chabad Shliach. So I figured again to practice, prepare for this. I needed to immerse myself in the world of Chabad. Except last night I was up like 11 o'clock learning Gemara because it's too much, too much Chabad. I shouldn't go recording. Okay, either way. So he says as follows. Everyone has two modes of behavior. There's their external behavior, the way we, you know, we manifest, really what's internally. What's internally said is our inner world, our feelings, our worldviews, those come from within. So he says as follows. The tzaddik is someone who has perfect alignment between their inner behavior, their, their inner desires, their worldview, and their external actions. The bainani is someone who doesn't have that. He says it, and he gives examples. So I'll tell you as follows. I have a test for you. For 24 hours, act on any impulse that arises to your mind. Do not filter. Don't question. Act immediately on it for 24 hours. The tzaddik will act exactly the same way. The bainani, he said, is someone who we have our internal struggles. So even though it goes from the, from the outside view, it, may look it, might, it might look like... Um, did I skip a page here? That's yeah, fine. It may look like it may look like we, a person's a total tzaddik gamor. Literally, looks like a total righteous person. Why? Because they have these internal struggles. They fight and they over. They're constantly winning. But that person's still a me because the point is, and this is very important for him, it's about trying to align our inner will with our external actions. It's not just about the actions we do outside, and he stresses this a lot in the book. It's not just the actions we do. It's also not about having just things made up in the mind. It's about melding the two worlds, the interactions. The inner, the inner desire and the outer mind. This really fits into what he says. This comes from Chaim Vital from the Arizal. He spends a lot of time talking about because all of us are made up of two different souls. We have the Nefesh of Bahamas, our animalistic soul, and the Nefesh Elokus, our godly soul. Or if I put it in psychological terms, we have what he, you know, the drive for self-transcendence and the impulse for self-preservation. Meaning to say, there are these two parts of us. And they're kind of always fighting with each other. Self-preservation, transcendence. Do I want to hold back? Do I want to go ahead with a desire? The Bainani is someone, again, so on the outside, it looks like he's doing everything right. She's doing everything right, but internally there's a struggle. Is there anything wrong with that? I think that's most of us. But the point of Tanya is to give a roadmap to how to try to slowly work on our inner self so that we can align our inner self with our external... Ex yeah. <laughs> We can, in our minds, think, think of any Avera, it's not like doing it. Correct. So, so except for Avodah Zohar. We think about <coughs> doing Avodah Zohar, it's like you've done it. Right. Other than if you're not really being punished by what your thoughts are, it's ultimately your action. So, so then what's the point of saying, I'm going to align my, you know, my, th my, my thoughts with my behavior, as long as I'm doing it. So what I want so to do, do, I think there's a shift, and this might actually be a real shift, even in the world of Hasidus, from the Litvish world, 
away from this concept of mitzvos and averos and think of them as like brownie points. And I, I'm not saying that to be to be um, to belittle it, but think of it as like you know I'll tell you what. There's a book called the Misil Yisharim, the Path to the Just. The way he sets up our you know our the point of this world. He goes, the point, of the, 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 the point of the world is, he says, to come close to God. How do you come close to God? By fulfilling the mitzvot. How do you, you, know, how do you separate from God? By doing sins and by falling in the, the pitfalls of this world. It's much more focused on mitzvah, avera, doing the right thing, doing the wrong thing. The Tanya is saying, you know, almost like, that's not what we're doing here. The point of life is to come close to God. Now, how do you come close to God? How do you know if something's a real... Um, genuine spiritual experience versus just, you know, the same ex- uh, emotional high you feel the same way that, you know, perhaps a monk who spends 24 days in solitude feels this emotional high. How do you know? Well, that's where the Torah comes in and, and gives us a formulation and gives us almost, and I'll take this way, gives us a scaffolding for how to live life. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Oftentimes, this type, type of Torah is called Torah Saponemius, the inner Torah, meaning to say that it's not just about the the if you live a life and everything you do is according to the letter of the book, will you go, go get to uh, Olam Haba? Will you get eternal reward? Yes, that's not the point. The point is we're trying to live an enriched life, a life where we build the inner persona, where there's an interiority of spirituality. That we're looking at the mitzvot, the mitzvot are there in order to facilitate some internal change. And I think it's, it's, it's very much a shift away from the mitzvot, which is why perhaps there's been a shift away from even the Talmud Torah aspect. Meaning, Talmud Torah is very much about, let's learn this, and let's focus very much on these external things. Although, I think Talmud Torah is much more than that, but one can claim that. When you start focusing on, no, we're going to, on davening, or on, even when I do a, a mitzvah such as uh, shaking the lulav, I'm going to think about the intention behind it, and how it's supposed to change me, and how it's supposed to connect me to God. It's much more, it's a look, almost looking at the Torah as a scaffolding. As like the, it's like almost, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the line that which we have to color in. That's also probably why, again, they faced a lot of backlash. But I think it's a, it's a real shift, a real shift about, this is about coming close to God. This is also why the language of Hasidus, the language of this, this Torah Sephanimus, it's a, it's a new vocabulary we have to learn. So if my intent is to do something, in mitzvah, I'm asserting the mitzvah, but I do it incorrectly, is there a score for... So that, that's the thing, you can answer that two ways. From the, from the, from the perspective of, the, I call the lambdas, you have one answer. Which we uh, we discussed on a Friday night. Rav Asher Weiss says a tshuva. A person opened up his tefillin after 25 years and found the tefillin more kosher. And he explains why the per, still per, per, person fulfilled the mitzvah. Um, and then you have and the chassidus might give a different, slightly different answer. Again, part of the issue, and I think another big issue with this sort of panemius Torah, is something we did, we've discussed in other contexts, and that is whenever you discuss reasons for mitzvos, you run into a situation where you kind of start looking at the mitzvot as a means to an end, which means if I can achieve that end without this mitzvah, I can obviate the purpose of the mitzvah. I'll give you an example. If I tell you the whole point, I'll make this up. The point of lulav is to remind us that God is in all four directions. So if I say, well, what if I constantly I walk around and I, I put a mezuzah over here and I put a tefillin over here and I put a shema over here, so I'm remembering God's in all four directions, why do I need to shake lulav? The answer is no, you still shake lulav because it's a mitzvah. So that's always, that's always, that was part of the critique. Once you start talking, the, por- the purpose of all this is to connect to God. So if I can connect to God, and this was actually, this is in the polemic, I connect to God through drinking, gets me into high, so I'm going to drink. And that was in the polemic against it, against Hasidus. 
So you start seeing where the tension, it's a real tension. I'm not going to deny it. But I think this idea of Torah Sapanemius, this inner Torah, it talks, it's a new vocabulary we have to discuss. It's a new vocabulary. It's a lot more God talk. God's a lot more present. It's a lot less focused on individual mitzvahs and averus and much more on connection. Much more, and we'll get there in a minute. And we can get there now. One of his big themes is, you know, he says it in a, he says it in various different ways. And if you look into, I did a quick Google search this morning, on, not Google search, I searched on Barilan for where these words show up. Um, and it's really throughout, really, the Kabbalah and Allah and Hasidus. Um, and this is put together, actually, by the, I, I didn't know this. There's a song which has these words. I'll read them to you in a minute. I didn't know where the words came from. They all sound familiar because he talks a lot. He uses a lot of similar words. The Kushner, his brother-in-law, actually wrote this in his book. Which means God is fulfills the whole world. He's the cause of the world, and without Him, there is no world. That talking about existence that's suffused with God. I think a good way of looking at this, and this is uh, a discussion we can have about the idea of divine imminence versus divine trans- uh, the transcendent. A transcendent God versus imminent God. There's two ways you can conceive of God. God can be transcendent. God's not in this world. God's somewhere else. We have to come close to God. But God is not necessarily involved. God's involved in this world as much as God's aware of this world and tries to um, orchestrate some things in this world. That's one way of looking at God. The imminent way of looking at God is like, no, God is like the engine of this world. I'll give you an analogy. Let's say you have a model train set. A model train set. And you build a set. And you turn it on, and you walk away. Will the train still go around? You turn it on. You turn it on, yeah. Why? Uh, you, you set it into motion. Once you set it into motion, the train will go eternally. From the perspective of, you can argue the Rambam. It's, it's, it's logical, although it's totally wrong and it's considered heresy, but it's logical to conceive of a world where God sets up the world and lets it go through going on the train set. Again, it's, it's heresy to think God would walk away, but it's logical to conceive it. Or in the analogy the Hasidim bring is, you have a, a potterer makes a, a, a pot, makes, a, makes a jar, a jug, and then sells it. The jug will never come back to the potter and the, the drug is still intact. From the perspective of Hasidus, of imminent God, it's not that God put together a train set, but God is the engine driving the train. Take away the engine, you don't have a train, you have some metal you know, that you can put in a playground somewhere. It's not that God formed the, 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 the jar, jug is held together from God. God is totally part, and without God, it's impossible. Without God, there is nothing. The world doesn't exist. God is what holds the world together. And he, and he actually does it, but he, he tries to hold both ends. He says, God, God is one that caused the world to run, and God is what's causing, God is what's causing the world to run, but God also is beyond it as well. He's, these are, again, these are concepts I'm still trying to grasp. He fills the world. Every, there's, no, there's no point in this world that's devoid of God. But the other sentence he will quote is, it's impossible to really grasp who God or what God is. Almost like a negative theology of the Rambam. You know, the Rambam writes famously, we can't describe God. The only way we can describe God is by describing what he's not. It's called negative, it's ne- it's called, it's called negative theology. Meaning to say, uh, an example would be as follows. Um, I want to describe to you what a ship is, but I'm not going to use the word ship. So I'll be like, a ship doesn't have wheels. And it doesn't, ha- it doesn't, it doesn't have wings. And it's not made out of paper. So by if I do enough of what it's not, slowly you can build a picture of what it is. The Rambam says the only way to come close to God is by saying what God's not. And eventually you get close to what God is. And the, the more you can understand what God's not, the closer you'll come to understanding what, what God is. I'm sorry, we're very philosophical today. 100%. Moshe Rabbeinu 
came the closest to understanding what God was not. Right? It's funny I say that. Moshe Rabbeinu was the kid that closed to understand what God was not, meaning to say he was able to eliminate enough things that that's why he had the closest conception of what God is by knowing what God's not. When you define something, you eliminate it. By definition, Correct. By definition, you eliminate something. So you're basically saying God is undefined. 100%. God is not definable. He's beyond this world, the Zohar says. Interestingly, I think the, the Baal tries to hold both ends. He tries to kind of say, like, well, it's impossible to come even understand what God is, but also God fills the world and God is everywhere and God is everything. And Malakal Amun was Sovikol Amun. Okay. It's very important. Also, it's very important for the Rambam, for the, for, the, for the Tanya, is this concept of building a dira betachtona, a dwelling for God in this world. That if God created this world, and God clearly has the uh, celestial world where, that, that sings praise to God every day, so why would God create this world? Clearly, there's something about this world that God couldn't get enough of, whatever that means, God getting, but God couldn't get from the angels and all the heavenly spheres and the spiritual forces, that God desired this world beyond, more, more than clearly, the spiritual world. Which is an interesting idea. And it's very important that we're going to come back to this. That if this world exists, God needed it, whatever that means beyond us for now, and God needs it more than he needs the world of the angels, which means our job, therefore, is to take this world and somehow transform it and make it a holier and spiritual world, to build a place for God in this world. So even if you're in Bangkok or uh, Montana, you want to build this dira, a place for God to come. Maybe doing mitzvahs so or putting on tefillin, you're bringing godliness and building a, a space for God in this world. It's a very important idea. And again, we spoke last week about the philosophical and theological underpinnings for a lot of the expressions we see in Chabad Hasidus. This is very important, to build a dira b'tachtona. I contrast that just because I'm going to with, for instance, for instance, Masil um, Sishar, we mentioned last week, or, or Moshe Chaim Latzato, I mentioned earlier this, this morning, he talks about the purpose of this world, he says, is just a way so we can get to the more important world, the next world. Right? He, he says, um, Masil Sishar over here. He opens up his work and saying, um, how does he put his work up? Um, so, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting. This. If, you, if, I, if you tell me the first word, I'll tell you the rest of it. Um, so, I'm, I'm not exactly right now. But um, he basically said the point of this world is to accrue enough, you know, for whatever reason God, God sees, or... Yeah, why not? We'll go into it. Basically, what he says is as follows. The point of this world is so we can get schar, we can achieve reward in the next world. Which, interesting, the question then is, if that's really the purpose of this world, so why can't God, who desires all good for us, just put us into the next world? And it seems to be built into the creation, built into, like, what it means to be, to be created, is the fact that we only appreciate what we deserve and what we earn. That's part of, like, that's not just, like, a, a nice idea, but that's built into the creation. We can only appreciate what we work hard for. And if God simply just put us into the world to come, we wouldn't appreciate it. Which is like a fascinating idea because you could say, but God could do anything. But clearly, there's something that, there's something that built into the, what it means to be human. Built into what it means to be part of this world, part of the primordial uh, ideas that what into this world is, we only appreciate what we work hard for. So God puts us in this world to work hard so we can get to the next world. But this world is nothing but, what he quote Pierre Kiyavos, a troclin. It's a corridor to the next world. For the Baal Tanya, he doesn't seem to say that. He seems to say, no, this world's an opportunity of a dear B'tachton to bring God into this world. Interestingly, the other major work that I would argue talks about these issues is Halachic Man of Rabbi Salvechik last year. Rabbi Salvechik's primary teacher, before it was his father, was Chabad Rebbe in uh, Kaslavich. 
So he was very influenced by Chabad, Rabbi Salavechik. He was very influenced by Chabad. Okay, where, where did that leave us? Any questions, thoughts, observations before we, uh, we have 15 minutes more for something else? I want to go through a piece in Tanya. Okay, so that was again just like an overview of some, of not even like all, a bunch, it's like two major themes that come up in Tanya, in the first book. The idea that we're all him, that the purpose of our lives is to align our inner selves with our ex- external selves, and how again it's a shift in vocabulary. It's not about talking about chayiv, you know, putter, obligated, not obligated. It's about talking about connection, not connection. Bringing God into this world. Okay, and the next idea is about, we talked about the, um, the two different souls, the souls of the animal soul versus the uh, human soul, and that they're always constantly in conflict. And then we, there's the, the conversation about uh, bringing God into this world. Okay, what I want to do now is I want to work through one piece of Tanya. We'll see how well we can do it. It's, it's, a very, it's an important piece regardless of whether you want to continue with learning Chabad Chassidus because he talks about what it means to love your fellow Jew. This piece is found in Perik Lamed Beis. Lamed Beis is Lamed Beis. What does that spell? Leif. Leif, heart. Yeah. It's interesting he puts it there and I'm sure that was intentional. You have it in front of you, you have it in English. He writes as follows. Again, I told you, this is a systematic work. It's not like, these aren't random chapters and, uh, and uh, articles he just, he, uh, he, he put into one, and compiled into one book, even he calls it Lakut Yamara, but this is a systematic work. He reads as follows. Based on what we said previously, what did we say previously? Well, we don't know, but he gives, he gives it a little bit. He was grouped with Nivzev and Nimos that one should look at one's body as disgusting and repulsive. As if to say that the physical, our physical bodies, those, that's not the purpose. That we're not supposed to look at it and, and take uh, joy from the physical bodies. But rather, our joy comes from the divine soul alone. This frame of mind will be an easy and accessible, straightforward path. To come fulfill the mitzvah of love your neighbor as yourself. The call nevish Yisrael, extending love to every soul in Israel. I think what he's saying is as follows, that so often what precludes us or stops us from loving someone else is ego. But when you're able to look beyond your, what makes you separate, I'll, see, I'll explain a little more. What, what makes me separate from you? Our body. But if you think about it, where does our soul come from? Our soul, he constantly talks about also, is a chilek al-kamimau. Each one of our souls really comes from one grand soul, and that is God himself, a piece of God or a soul of God, however you want to interpret that, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later this year. If our souls are really all one, and they just somehow, they got, they, they got split into multiple bodies, well, once you eliminate, once you eliminate the thing that holds us, that makes us separate, as in our body, you say, I'm, I'm not going to uh, recognize it. I'm going to realize it's just something that's, 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 creating barriers, so suddenly uh, what I see now is not someone else, but I see a, por- a, you know, a part of me, the, inter- the interconnectedness of each one of, each one of us. <speaking in Hebrew> Once your body is, um, you separate yourself from your body. <speaking in Hebrew> As for your soul and spirit, who knows their greatness and worth? <speaking> in the root and source in the living God. Again, making our point, where, where is it coming from? <speaking in Hebrew> no, this is what we're talking about Jews right now. Who I choose right now? And that's, by the way, that is going to be something that, a thread throughout, even Lubavitch. 
you know, the role, the place of non-Jews and how, in Kabbalah in general, non-Jews don't have the same level as Jews. So that's also something that you have to know. I think sometimes people assume, oh, this sort of Hasidus, Chabad, they've seen very embracing of everyone, but you have to also recognize there's no, you have to hold both. So that's a big question. The Baal deals with that. That the Neshama changes, it does not change. I think the Baal thinks it does, if I remember correctly. Others think, no, but their kids will. The Baal I believe, thinks it does. I mean, I think he evokes the language of someone converses, a new child. I believe that's, that's what he says. In fact, okay, uh, yeah, I'll get there. Okay, we'll get to Malatani. Bishagam, Jekulam, Miss Amiso. Because ultimately, this, every soul is equal because all of them have the same father. He's also, it's interesting, he's quoting different psukim for this, as in he's just like he's weaving in psukim in verses. But what, again, what he's saying is, our bodies separate us, we have the same soul. And that's why all Jews are called brothers, literally brothers. Because all of us have the same soul that is God. We all the same source of our soul. It's just our bodies separate each other. Just parenthetically, if you know Nach, or you know even like rabbinic, rabbinic literature, he's actually, he's using phrases in a, in a very like almost masterful way. He's weaving together phrases and verses to write his point. So it's cool how he's doing that. Okay. Therefore, for those who make their bodies primary and their soul secondary, it's impossible to have true, sincere love. It's always going to be conditional. I think this is true. That if you if you look you no know, even let's pull step away from religion for a moment, if you have two people who are only focusing on the physical, in a way as much as they love each other, there's a certain aspect of what is in it for me. But if you, if you focus on the person, the individual, the person in front of you, not as a body, but as a person, as a nefesh, a soul, whatever word you want to use for that, so then you can have true, sincere, deep love where it's not about what is in it for me. No, is that fair to say? It's not mutually exclusive. It's not mutually exclusive. But what he's saying, and he's, he's couching it in, in, in religious language of the soul, but I think if you use the soul as in the, with a small s, people will, it's the same idea. It's about looking at the other person. And therefore, this is what Hillel says. This is alluding to a story. Hillel basically says this, the... the, um, the the entire Torah is summed up in love your neighbors yourself, and the rest is commentary. But what he means is, if you think about it, what he's trying to say is, well, the way the Rebbe learns it is, because what we say in that sentence is, what's the primary? God. What's the, we're all souls. And everything else is basically coming to work away the idea that we, are, we care about our bodies and the physical too much. Fine. And this is why it's the source of all the Torah. So that's what he says there. Then he goes on to say, uh, uh, we're going to skip a little. Again, feel free to ask any questions. He, say, he then goes on to say as follows. Does this really apply to everyone? Because the, the Gemara says, one who sees their friend who sins, you have an obligation to hate them. That sinning isn't just a, you know, we, don't, we, we live in a democracy where we live with the, the idea of, of, of liberty and everyone can do what they want. But according to the Torah, if you see someone sinning, you have an obligation to hate them. So first he says, what does that mean? That means your chavero. What's the language of the Gemara? Your friend. When it says friend, often in the Gemara uses friend, it doesn't mean an actual friend. It means someone 
who is who is religious like you are. Meaning to say, and he goes on to explain, someone who knows they're doing the wrong thing, who grew up that way, that and knowing and it was okay with it, and decides to walk away from it. Which is very different than someone who doesn't know better, or never grew up that way. Or in this generation, you can argue, growing up with it, we're never fully inspired. And this is something that, again, the Chaznish talks about as well. That when you live in a generation where people never really, don't, you don't see God's presence manifest, so no one really is considered what we call a chaver nowadays. This is the Gemara says in the midst of the hate someone, it means someone who, it's a very specific person. Well, it's like, um, if you were all sharing a soul, then it's like, are you, are you doing something wrong? You're hurting me too, because you have a sharing of soul. A hundred percent, which may be the root for why you should hate them. But here's something he says that's very interesting. Um, he says as follows. So that there, there is a mitzvah to hate someone who does, who sins. But he says, however... And then he goes on to say, I'll do it say it outside, he goes, but the mitzvah to love them never goes away. I mean, often you think, and some argue, there's a mitzvah to love someone until the obligation kicks in to hate them, to dislike them. But he says, no. The mitzvah to love someone always exists even if there's a mitzvah to hate them, which means we have to bifurcate and recognize it's not a mitzvah to hate them, but to hate their actions. There's a famous Gemara was with Bruria, who, the wife of mayor, who, who basically said, "No, don't daven for the sinners to die. Daven for the sins to die. Don't daven for the sinners to die. Daven for the sins to die. Daven for the sins to die." Correct. Correct. One hundred percent. And therefore, so he goes on to say that um, um, that when you look at that, both emotions are going to be valid. If you're, you're, it's, you end up in a very funny place. You're hating someone, you're loving someone. He says, yeah, both emotions are valid. Both are true. You, you have contempt for the evil in them. But love because of the goodness that's within them. Because that's a part of the divine spark. Which energizes the divine soul. And I think this is important as well is that divine spark cannot be corrupted. As you just said, once you're a Jew, always a Jew, if you assume that's really part of the divine, it's impossible to actually corrupt it. So all you're doing is you're layering on top of it, you know, the filth and the sin. But what, that, where it leaves us now is a very interesting place. You have someone who acts very sinful, and you hate their sins, but you still have to love the part of them that's good, and the part of them that's good, is in, it's impossible to corrupt, which means it's no different than you. It's no different than you. So think about this. Now, we look at another Jew who may live a life that seems sinful, but you say, but in a way, they're no less of a Jew than I am because that divine spark that's within them. Again, you can start seeing where Chabad Hasidus really embraces this. The guy with six tattoos and long hair and 12 piercings, and he's putting on tefillin because, yeah, the part that's put on tefillin is no different than me who has a big beard and a big hat and no jacket. Chabad. Right? Is that why the Jews are hated so much? Because they think that they'll be like their superior? I think anti-Semitism is irrational, and there's no way to justify it. Because either we're hated because we think we're better, or we're hated because we're worse. Or we're hated because we have too much money, or we're hated because we have no money. That's just, that's always been the story. We hate beca- we're hated because we uh, defend ourselves, we're hated because we don't defend ourselves. We're hated because we bomb a hospital, we're hated because we don't bomb the hospital. We, we didn't bomb the hospital. It's, Anti-Semitism, as Ray Sachs always said, is irrational and impossible. It's, it's irrational. There's no way to... It's, you know, we've we've been we've we've been accused of being the communists. We've been accused of being the capitalists in the same breath. It's just an, it's an irrational hatred, which is partially why we shouldn't. We've 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 been accused of being Christ killers, and we've been accused of of, of being too religious. You name it, and the Jews have been accused of it, right? We, 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 cosmopolitan. You know, I remember I was reading the a memoir 
of an SS officer. And he wrote, he goes, know what the problem with the Jews are? So I always thought, you know, the problem with the Jews are they want to integrate into society, and they're, they're still keeping their unique tradition, and that was the problem. He goes, no, I went to Poland, these Jews, they live, they're, they're poor, and decrepit houses, they sit studying the Talmud all day, they're, they're, they're like vermin, all they're doing is leeching off the world. Again, this is from the SS officer. And then you read other accounts of the same generation, another SS officer, I didn't read this, but I'm sure you'll find it. You know the problem with the Jews are? They think they can come in here and impose communism or impose capitalism and they want to take over society, take over the banks. We've been accused of everything. I think I, that's why we don't change our behavior in the face of anti-Semitism because they'll, just, they'll, they'll mutate. As Ray Sachs always said, it's, it's a virus. Anti-Semitism mutates. We're Christ killer and then it mutates to being we're the superior race and now it's, it's fourth mutation where we're the Zionist, the, the colonialist and uh, you know, as I think everyone's had to wake up this week, even those who kind of thought they can, uh, they can always make a distinction between those who are anti-Zionist and anti-Semitism. I think we've all woken up to the reality that that's not really possible. It's, it's splitting hairs that don't exist. They're crazy. Okay. They're, they're, it's it's, it's five yeah. people and they're nuts. I'll tell you the uh, one of the Jewish websites had an article that said anti-Semites dress up as as, uh, as anti-Semites dress up as as Orthodox Jews to protest yeah. Israel. There's a picture of them. They're crazy. They're they're five people living in, in in Muncie. They're nuts. We don't talk about them. I mean, we could. They're, they're evil. Okay. That's why uh, when something happens, we all say uh, my family used to say, "We hope it's not a Jew that did it." <laughs> Well, that's also there's a certain fraternity we feel for each other because